Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1950, and our book is Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. We have two guests today. Mike McGuinness is the author of the novel Fat Man, Little Boy, as well as Drowning Practice, which is currently available for pre-order and will be out in March. Um, And then I'm also talking to David Bergerard, who is the author of two novels also, Short Century and The Epiphany Machine. So the premise of Strangers on a Train is pretty famously that there are two strangers and they meet on a train, Guy and Bruno, two men. Um, they each have someone in their lives that they'd like murdered. Uh, Bruno offers to kill Guy's wife Miriam, who won't give him a divorce, in exchange for Guy killing Bruno's father. And the idea is if they each do the other one's murder, they won't get caught. Um, Guy does not agree to the scheme, but Bruno kills Miriam anyway. Um, and then he sort of begins to apply subtle and then much less subtle pressure to Guy um, to force him to kill Bruno's father. Uh, there's a Hitchcock movie based on this, and in, the, in that movie, um, Guy does not do it, but in the book he does. Uh, after this murder, Guy can marry his new fiancée, Anne, and Bruno has money, um, but they've also become very attached to one another, and um, at one point Guy actually risks his own life to save Bruno's life, though Bruno does die. Um, and at that point, Guy's life is basically perfect. Um, though there is a detective on the case trying to figure out who killed Bruno's father. Uh, but Guy tries to figure out uh, who's been harmed by any of these deaths. Uh, Bruno's father was an unpleasant person. Um, he didn't love Miriam anymore. He uh, eventually decides to apologize to the man who would have married Miriam if she had lived. Um, and the kind of strange scene that we will talk about quite a lot in our conversation, the man brushes Guy off and says essentially that her death was no big deal. Um, however, the detective overhears this confession and apprehends Guy. All right, that's the story. On to our conversation. Thank you both so much for doing this. I, um, I feel like we've been talking for a really long time about doing various episodes um, with each of you. And I'm really happy that it worked out to uh, to do this one all together. Um, Mike, we had talked about this book. You had talked about Highsmith. And I think I kind of chose Strangers on a Train just because the premise sounded kind of cool. Um, what is your relationship with Highsmith? Like, how does this, where does this come from for you? Yeah, so um, I first became aware of Patricia Highsmith, I think the same way a lot of people generally do or did in sort of a window, uh, which was the um, the talented Mr. Ripley adaptation with Matt Damon. I was like 14, 15, something when it came out. And I remember I saw it and it was a formative experience in ways I wouldn't understand fully for a long time. Uh did not fully get the uh, extremely erotic treatment of Jude Law and that character, understood that there was some sort of subtext to what I was seeing, but didn't didn't really get it. Um, And then later I found out, you know, that that she was actually a very good writer. I kind of assumed, I think, because it had been adapted into a movie that I think is an interesting failure. Um, And because she was sort of categorized uh, at the time, I think this may have changed a little bit, the perception of her but she was seen at the time as like very much a thriller writer right uh, when that movie came out and so I just assumed the books were bad for years and then I finally read The Talented Mr. Ripley and I thought it was amazing and I, I really enjoyed it and um, then I decided I would eventually read all of her work I haven't gotten there yet I made it through uh, Ripley's Game and I understand there's a little bit of fall off in quality after that uh, in those books um, but Strangers on a Train is is a really interesting one to me because I think that it is 
it is both like a very pure version of what she does in that the premise, like you said, is cool and it's simple and it's easy to explain to somebody. And it became a movie that was even simpler and easier to explain to people. Um, but it's also an early novel in a way that you really feel. And it, it feels like sort of, a, sort of a dry run, sort of a rough sketch for what became Ripley's Game later, which has a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same anxieties, but maybe has processed them a little bit more. Um, so that's kind of my initial uh, thoughts on, on how I relate to her. How about you, David? What's your relationship with, with her work? Well, I would say that uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I was obsessed with Hitchcock. Um, and uh-huh. so I, I saw um, Strangers on a Train um, many times, along with all of Hitchcock's other films. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a little older than Mike. I was um, either late high school or early college when Talented Mr. Ripley came out. I also loved it. Um, I remember it um, getting um, some mixed reviews. And Mike, it sounds like you, you said it was an interesting failure. Um, I think it's a very interesting success. <laughs> I love both that uh, and Purple Noon, the 1960 French adaptation of The Talented Mr. Ripley. I think I think both are fantastic films. And, uh, and I wound up reading uh, the novel... Uh, actually, when I was assigned it in college, I had that, that would have been maybe 2001, 2002. I had a professor who was very angry that um, the talent of Mr. Ripley wasn't uh, considered high literature along with Dostoevsky and, you know, anything else. And I, I, I agree with that assessment. I think that the talent of Mr. Ripley is is an absolutely wonderful book. I think I've discussed with you, with you both um, privately. I actually have some reservations about whether the ending to that book is better or worse or just different uh than the endings to purple noon and and the uh the Mingela version um both of which both of which have interesting endings and uh um, i think both make this the story different in interesting ways um, Wait, do you just sketch that out for our listeners okay sure sure so so uh, um sorry to spoil uh three different works of art for <laughs> anyone who hasn't, uh, who hasn't listened but uh the novel uh ends with ripley getting away with it and happily getting into a cab um, and saying, uh, take me to the best hotel. Uh, I think in Italian to sort of underline just how uh, uh, assimilated uh, this uh, American con artist has become. Purple Noon, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I apologize if I get some, I'm not going to go into the details, but basically he gets caught um, and um, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, and as I recall um, that version downplays the homoeroticism uh, a little bit. In the, in the Miguel version, the uh, homoeroticism is very much uh, amped up in, uh, and, and I think very productive ways. Um, and it ends uh, with uh, Tom having found a genuine love, um, but then through uh, um, some circumstances that um, I would admit are somewhat contrived uh, in, order to evade, in order to evade arrest, he winds up having to murder uh, his lover. And the fact that he has to murder someone that he actually deeply loves, to me, that might be my favorite of the three endings. Um, it is it is different. It focuses less on Tom's uh, sociopathic nature uh, than it does on um, the trap uh, that a gay man uh, of, uh, of something other than wealth uh, finds himself in uh, in, the, in the 1950s. Um, but like I say, I think that all three versions uh, have their charms and, and have things to recommend them, which will then also, and I, and I assume we will um, talk about this a, a little, uh, also relates to Strangers on a Train, um, where the movie version is very different uh, from the book. Uh, um, Extremely starting different. In the middle. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. I was just... Uh, no, 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 I was just saying that, that I think that they're two very um, different uh, stories and I think that because I was particularly t- attached since childhood to the Hitchcock version, um, my uh, my general um, feeling is that the Hitchcock version is better. But like I say, I, I don't necessarily trust um, that judgment. Um, I think that that um, you could ar- argue convincingly either way. Yeah. So I just I just read the book without having seen the Hitchcock version of Strangers mm-hmm. on the Train, and I. Um, I read the book as just about it's like, it's incoherent almost as a plot. If it's not mainly talking about being gay, Mm -hmm. 
like this to me, um, the idea that these two men have this bond that's criminal in nature, but is also more real and more profound than any of their sort of socially allowable bonds. And they kind of hate their connection, but are also compelled by it constantly. Um, And then she has a few of these little asides where she's like, it's just how it feels to be a criminal. It's just the way that, uh, you know, every human wants to, and I just can't help putting this in quotation marks, like commit a bunch of murders. And it's like, no, you just, you just mean be gay, you know, (laughs) it doesn't really make sense that they would have this relationship with each other if they actually were what the premise says, which is strangers who are uh, swapping murders so that they will not be caught. Like they act as little as possible, like people who are trying not to be caught. They act like people who want to hook up, you know, and they, the way that they are about each other's bodies, the way that they are about each other's, you know, the way that uh, Bruno is specifically about Anne, the woman that guy loves. Um, I was like, this doesn't make, the book does not make sense if it's not actually a story of love and seduction as opposed to a story of murder. It's like almost incoherent as a story of murder, um, except for the degree of misogyny in the description of killing uh, Guy's first wife. When Bruno kills Guy's first wife, Miriam, that is plausibly to me a murder scene because of how disgusted this character is by this female body. So I was like, it, it seems like a story of gender ambivalence. Um, and it seems like a story of homosexuality. It seems like a story of everything except murder. But then the Hitchcock <laughs> movie, I was like, okay, this is actually a story about murder. No, I agree with that. I think that it is an incoherent book. And I say that as a person who likes it a lot, I did struggle with this more on my second read, I think because I had a little more mastery of the material on my second read. And I also had the Hitchcock film as a point of comparison, which I watched second on David's recommendation. And um, I think I like the incoherence of the book a little bit more than I like the coherence of the movie. But I do think for for all the reasons you describe, it kind of has to be about that. But I also think that it's ambivalent about being about that in a way that the later Ripley books are clearer on this, right? I think that the form that the seduction takes and the ambivalence about Guy, which I find fairly persuasive. I think Bruno is very into Guy. I think Guy is confused about whether he's into Bruno, and I honestly don't think he is that into him. Um, but uh, I think I think that that is interesting, and I don't think that you see it as much in the um, more successful sort of repetition of this story in Ripley's Game, which also has murder through or seduction through murder between men but and this relates to what you're talking about with the misogyny i importantly the the ripley novels generally as as far as i can remember they position the seduction of men by men through murder as being homosocial in almost all cases right so there isn't the murdering of the wife in order to seduce the husband there is instead the murdering of another man um, yeah. either to consummate the seduction or to further the seduction of another man. And I think that I think that there's really interesting, icky stuff in the misogyny of, of this book. And, and I think that it, it wants to talk about that, but I also think that it's confused about that. Yeah, and I, I think in some ways, just the date when this was written, like mm-hmm. uh, that... It was probably like the worst time in the entire 20th century to say clearly that this person is likely trans, the, the author. Um, and, you know, she uses she, her pronouns, but she also writes a lot about how she wishes she had a male penis and, you know, um, that she prefers. She, she, uh, uh, later on in the 70s, um, she wrote a, a um, really disturbing and um in some ways, really extraordinary book of short stories called uh, Little Tales of Misogyny. Um, and I actually just learned a few minutes before signing on from Wikipedia uh, that it uh, that book originally appeared 
in German before it appeared in English. And the um, German title of that book um, literally translates to Little Tales for Misogynists, which is a very different title than Little Tales of Misogyny. Um, and so, so that seems quite relevant. Yeah, and I think that like the the various sort of surface level, you know, Wikipedia level reading that I was doing about her saying like, oh, isn't it weird? She was a lesbian misogynist. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I think that people hating the people that they're attracted to is extremely mm-hmm. well, you know, it's like everyone knows that that's the thing, you know, Absolutely. Um, it's not actually surprising or strange that she would be both a lesbian and a misogynist and also dislike the company of women and be like kind of a hateful creep, mm-hmm. you know, like I think she's a pretty awful person and that's pretty well established mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, whatever kind of way, uh, a lot of ways. Um, and it's interesting to see. I feel like strangers on a train is almost like an explication of that mindset of feeling so torn up against herself and to hate what she loves and to not be what she is and to feel that anything that feels like reality to her is almost essentially violence and criminal and anything that society would approve of about her is, is fake. And like um, Bruno's description of trying to love someone and he's like, it just makes me feel ridiculous. I think that I, I can't help laughing at the idea of trying to, to like fall in love with a woman. Um, I don't know. Like the book is so cold in a way. It's cold toward its own characters. D- does that seem right to you? Like it, I, um, it seems like. So, so, this, so this, this is interesting. I, I, I don't find it cold to its own characters um, until the middle of the book um, when um, there is the major uh, change between the film and the novel. So for anyone who doesn't know, uh, in the film, uh, well, in both versions, um, Bruno approaches um, Guy with the um, deal that he, Bruno, will kill uh, Miriam, Guy's wife, uh, who is uh, essentially... Uh, his ex-wife, but is refusing to give him a divorce for various reasons, um, thus freeing him up, thus freeing Guy up to marry his true love. And uh, in exchange, Guy is supposed to kill Bruno's father, whom Bruno hates for all sorts of Freudian and non-Freudian reasons. Uh, um, uh, in the uh, movie, uh, Guy uh, does not do this. Um, and uh, Bruno, uh, there's a sort of interesting, um, to my mind, very homoerotic scene uh, where um, Guy shows up to uh, uh, to warn um, Bruno's father and goes into Bruno's father's um, bedchamber. Uh, and it turns out that Bruno is lying there in his father's bed waiting for Guy, um, which, uh, you know, of course, couldn't, I don't think you could have a greater homoerotic subtext than that. Uh, um, and, uh, um, and then in the book, Guy um, does go out, go ahead and kill. Uh, he he kills um, Bruno's father, uh, and to my mind, a lot of the uh, success or failure of the book depends on uh, how um, how much you buy that guy is eventually going to shoot and kill Bruno's father. Um, the first time I read *Strangers on a Train* a couple of years ago, actually just before the pandemic. Um, I reacted very badly to that. I was like, this, is, this isn't how this story goes. But like I said, that's in large part because of my familiarity with the Hitchcock film. Uh, this time around, I was, I was a little bit more um, convinced um, about the way that uh, Guy sort of dissociates from himself in, as the result of being pursued um, by Bruno. Um, but um, it still, it still re- definitely reads as cold because throughout then, uh, uh, always after that, um, guy doesn't really feel like Guy. Oh, there's a riff at the end where um, Guy is trying to figure out who was harmed by this entire thing, mm-hmm. whether anyone was harmed, whether mm-hmm. anyone. And so he he thinks that maybe the woman, the uh, the man who was going to marry Miriam, right, harmed. And so yeah. he try, he finds this guy and he tries to apologize to him. Yeah, he's like, eh, 
you know, she would have been my third wife. It would have been terrible anyway. You know, women are terrible. And um, what a scene that it, 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 and and then yeah, of course he's like, no. What about yeah. human life? What about human dignity? Right. And it's just kind of like no one cares. Yeah, and no like, one cares except like, for the oh. detective, whoever hears the confession. Um, and I do wonder if she had written this book um, twenty or thirty years later, uh, whether that scene of the, or even ten years later, wh- whether the uh, whether that scene of the detective overhearing and bringing guy to justice. Um, would have would have happened or because the, the the real nasty ending is when he confesses the crime to um to Miriam's lover and uh the lover doesn't care and and for all the reasons that you said that that's just a really devastating moment yeah I think that this really speaks to the to the like the fundamental incoherence of the book that scene really captures why I think the book can't I don't think it quite knows what it wants to say. And I think that it forces itself to say something that it doesn't believe. Because for me, the creepiness of... Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that are creepy about that scene. But the but the the lover of Miriam saying, you know what? Actually, we're sort of in a community of men. And among us, we kind of accept each other doing murders and, and horrible things and exploiting women for sex. And that's fine. And I'm going to welcome you in with, with open arms to that. And... Guy is tempted by this. He he starts to rationalize his way to it. And in many ways, he already believes it, right? Because when he tried to think of the list of people who could have been murdered by or been harmed by Miriam's murder, Miriam didn't rate. It was it was the lover that was of concern. Um, but the book, so I think that the book fundamentally believes that. I don't think that it's happy with itself for that. I don't think that she's fully comfortable, the author, with the fact that she believes that yet. Or at least she's not comfortable with people knowing that about her. And so the detective has to come in and impose the moral ending on this that makes it possible to adapt it into a, I would say, still less ambiguous um, Hitchcock film. Um, that's That sort of represents uh, society coming in and saying, this is how the book will need to end, Patricia. Um, and later she finds ways around that. Like you're saying, David, she finds ways of, of having similar conversations and going ahead and siding with the monsters. Uh, but I'm sorry, Catherine, I cut you off there. Oh, no. Well, I think that that guy even sort of thinks, like, isn't anyone ever going to um, enforce the rules? Like, mm-hmm. aren't there rules against doing murders? And aren't those rules there because of human dignity and because of the value of life? And if nobody actually will enforce any of these rules, does that mean that actually lives don't have value after all and i'm with you i think that that the story she's telling is that no lives don't have value Mm -hmm. and that love especially love for women is kind of fake and the the bond between the two men which is a bond of kind of agreeing that lives don't have value and love is fake that that's that's the truest thing in the, because it's the thing that, um, you know, even if Bruno is trying to sort of seduce Guy and Guy is ambivalent, when Bruno is dying, like he's he's drowning, mm-hmm. Guy risks his own life to try to save him. Right. Um, so that there is something real there for Guy in the book. Um, but it's basically the thing you say. It's this like brotherhood of we all understand that actually doing murders is fine and in fact desirable fun um happens in the amusement park because it's you know like it's like a satisfaction on par with uh, a roller coaster or candy cotton candy whatever and murdering women is especially fine, right? Like they get away with that. Society kind of says, okay, you know what we don't need to pre- we don't really need to solve this crime. But then when a rich guy gets murdered, there is a detective whose entire life is about solving that problem. That's true. Yeah. And it's also true that that guy does have to dissociate from his sense of morality in order to um, uh, in order to kill the rich man. But uh, when Bruno is killing Miriam, it's definitely like just squishing her gross squishiness until she stops being so gross you know like there's much more uh 
just enjoyment of the disgust of her body. Um, I don't know, Highsmith, kind of pervy. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's, it certainly is pervy. And then you could even read that, that ending um, as now that Bruno is dead, despite Guy tr- risking his own life to try to save him, he almost becomes Bruno uh, in the sense that um, Bruno um, really very, very clearly in both the book and the movie, um, regardless of whether Guy says kill Miriam or not, Bruno is doing Guy a huge favor uh, um, in that um, Guy has ac- has uh, um, this incredible life before him, mar- who's going to marry um, into wealth um, and uh, um, and he's going to have a wife who supports him um, uh, as long as Miriam gets out of the way uh, and Bruno gets her out of the way. Uh, um, now that Bruno is dead, um, he on one level, wants to apologize to the man that he believes loved her. Um, that itself, of course, is misogynistic, as Mike was suggesting, that um, uh, you know, Miriam doesn't factor in as someone who was harmed <laughs> in, this, um, uh, in this whole endeavor. Um, but then um, Owen's like, ah, whatever, it wouldn't have worked. So in, in a sense, um, uh, Guy has taken on Bruno's role as the person who got somebody else uh, out of the way, um, so so that that seems to be to, to be like you know it's it's sort of like a, a favor culture, um, which is disturbing in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, another thing that that is different in the uh, the movie, mm-hmm. the career that um, yes, that guy is going into his politics and he's coming out of tennis playing. And yeah. in the book, he's an architect all along. And right. Miriam being his wife would have meant that he doesn't get this big job. And then he mm-hmm. does a big job once Miriam is dead. And it's a little right. complicated. And then he he kind of goes on to bigger jobs. And he's, you know, being uh, heralded as a genius. Mm-hmm. And there is an element in the book that is not in the movie uh, that being a murderer makes you smarter and cooler than other people that it it isn't just uh you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of like ayn rand mm-hmm. oh, oh yeah with the architecture thing that, that, that well, with the architecture right. thing yeah like that you're but also the idea that you have ascended to some mm-hmm. like better plane of existence once you're um a murderer yeah well it's it's a little confused on that point, though. Or, well, I think I think it gives differing accounts because it is true that Bruno is constantly saying that that he's saying he feels the most himself. He feels like a higher person. He feels like everybody else is an idiot for not doing murders like him and Guy. But he's always at his least dependable when he's saying this shit, right? Like when he gets blasted out of his mind drunk, that's when he declares that he is a genius. And I don't think the reader is meant to believe him on that. I don't think that the reader, when he is thrilling at the incredible quality of his plan, is meant to agree with him on that either. And and there is that one moment, I forget exactly when, where he realizes, you know, actually, I just kind of did that. I barely even planned it. Come to think of it, I just sort of lucked into that murder. Um, So, like, the book does feel that way, and certainly her body of work feels that way in the future. But it is also satirizing that belief um, pretty consistently, I think. That's interesting. Well, I mean, it's a clever plan, right? Uh, um, that that's what gives the story its sort of high concept hook. Uh, um, yeah, uh, but uh, um, but they don't, as you were saying at the top, it this is not executed very well. Yeah, it's like it's not executed very well if the point is to not get caught, right? Like once the detective gets onto uh, all of the just really enormous number of times they have contact with each other, enormous number of like phone calls and letters and gifts and visits in public and parties that they're attending, all these things. Um, They're not even remotely subtle about um, pretending they actually don't know each other, which they didn't know each other. And it does make sense. Like the, the parts that make sense to me are 
it makes sense that they would come up with this plan that guy would not agree to it, that Bruno would do his part first. Mm -hmm. And that then Bruno would want to sort of put some pressure on guy until guy does his part. Mm -hmm. All of that makes sense. Mm -hmm. However, the amount that Bruno just wants to hang out with guy Mm -hmm. and like be with him, talk about how cool it is to do murders, like those things. Um, I mean, early on, he even puts it in a telegram uh, after their first meeting. It's like, exactly. hey, like, like, let, let's let's do this murder together. <laughs> you know? oh, it's, it's, it reminds me it reminds me of the scene in The Wire where Stringer Bell says, "Are you taking notes on a criminal conspiracy?" It, you know, <laughs> doesn't doesn't seem like a good idea. Oh, and then just like leaving them out in public. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't make sense as a murder story. It makes sense as a sex story that turns into a love story right. or a production story. Yeah. Um, but I, and I, uh, um, I mean, so, so, so on, on the uh, um, profession change, um, mm-hmm. there are certainly advantages to uh, having a guy be an architect. Um, there's actually a really quite beautiful passage um, just before guy is going to kill um, Bruno's father when he arrives at the house um, and thinks about the house um, from the perspective of an architect. Um, that's, a, that's a great, great passage. Um, but um, I think that um, Hitchcock gets a lot out of the change to, um, to tennis player um, in a way that uh, um, allows um, Bruno's obsession with Guy's body um, to really come through, including in what is really one of the greatest shots in film history uh, when um, uh, uh, when guy sees Bruno in the uh, stands at a tennis match and everybody else's heads, all the other heads of the spectators are going back and forth between the, uh, or just following the ball. Um, Whereas Bruno's uh, eyes are just focused squarely on guy. Um, And that's that, you know, even if the only purpose of making the change to a tennis player was that, I think that would be worth it. Yeah. That scene definitely has, just it's right on the um, the edge between seduction and menace. Right. Um, that again, like you're saying, it's like focus on the body. Um, I think that that feeling that guy has this brilliant future. It's very like the, the relationship between reputation and uh, you know, your future in politics, it's like, that's extremely well understood and what it means to make the right marriage. All those things are very clear for cinematic reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think that when it's architecture, I think that there is more of a sense that, that Guy believes himself to, to sort of know how the world should be crafted. He mm-hmm. knows how things should be set up. And Anne wants a bunch of traditional furniture that mm-hmm. he thinks is like, um, unmodern, you know, he wants like clean modern lines, whatever, and she wants traditional furniture, which he feels is cluttered in uh, in their bedroom once they're married. And uh, I think the book really does think that there's something that they've discovered that's brilliant and true in their relationship. Essentially, in they just- being Guy and Bruno, yes. That there's something fake about what is seen as the real world. And that if you're a person who can see beyond what you're shown and see what's possible. uh, I mean, this this is definitely an idea um, that's already present um, in Hitchcock's work. Uh, Just a couple years earlier, um, Hitchcock directed a film called Rope, that starred uh, Farley Granger, who is um, uh, who plays okay. Guy in the movie, um, and uh, Farley Granger in that movie is one of two um, young men uh, who ex- who explicitly murder a friend of theirs specifically to prove their superiority, um, and the and the, the uh, film uh, is very um, explicit uh, in the in that discussion. It's not subtext or anything like that. They're uh, talking about it, and they they in fact have supposedly been influenced by their professor, who was played by Jimmy Stewart, um, who uh, makes arguments about how um, uh, superior people should be allowed to murder people, um, and then is horrified when he discovers that his ideas have been carried out. Uh, and that was uh, uh, that uh, movie was first a play, but 
That was based on the Leopold and Loeb murders in the 20s. Um, and that's been uh, sort of a big influence on popular culture uh, ever since. Uh, so, so that crime and punishment also like crime oh, 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 certainly, certainly in crime yeah. and punishment, certainly in crime and punishment. Yeah. Like, I guess a lot of people think that they should. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because they're so smart. Right. Um, and then the. Um, but al- but also that that idea history. tends in these stories to be to to turn out to be uh, false. Certainly Dostoevsky was was um, approaching um, the subject from a Christian perspective. Um, where he believed that um, there is um, a good and just order to the universe, um, and that um, uh, committing murder is an is an offense against that um, that justice. Um, it becomes muddied more and more um, later on, until arguably maybe you get to um, the German and American versions of Funny Games, but both um, directed by Michelle Hanukkah. Um, we're also taking inspiration from the, the Leopold and Lowell murders, um, but being much less clear um, that um, the murderers are doing anything wrong. Well, I think the the punishment in the secret history, which is also kind of mm-hmm. a, we're so smart, we should be allowed to, to do murders right. uh, book. The, the punishment there is that the characters all um, have such an intense experience of identity mm-hmm. they are um kind of torn apart mm-hmm. uh does that seem like a fair analysis of that book or do you, <laughs> you agree with that okay um i it it seems like there's it seems like there's something in the way that the um strangers on a train like if you think of it as the the straight world is one that Highsmith herself just feels is bullshit um, and that the murder world is in fact the gay world or the world of in which gender identity as she experiences it is uh, affirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, that really is where, where reality is happening. Like that really is... Does this make sense? Like the, um, God, I'm sorry. I'm like not speaking clearly at all. No, what you're saying makes sense to me. I mean, I think you're actually, you've answered a question that I came in wanting to ask because I feel like the book drags in the middle in a, in a pretty serious way because like my read is that the book does not like Guy very much, but it is superficially, if you look at just what the text says when it's being most instructive, it's trying to convince me that Guy is awesome. He is an exceptional genius of a human being. He has the ability to have unity with the mind of God by doing his art. And even he is capable of murder. And it emphasizes this several times that, you know, the point of the book is that anyone is capable of murder. But I don't think that the book thinks that. I think that the book thinks that some cool, special, maybe gay people are capable of murder. And then there's the rest of the sheep. Um, I agree with that. So I think I think that's I think yeah you're yes I agree with what you're saying and I think it relates to that that confusion that I had because I I felt like the book was working against itself with Guy and what I think you've made me realize is that the book is as bored with Guy uh, being straight and resistant to Bruno's advances in the middle as uh, I was um, and it it really wants him to get on and do the murder. Which I did too, but you know, for genre reasons, not because I think it's awesome. I don't think that Guy is straight. I think I think in the books world, Guy has access to the straight world, but mm-hmm. I also think that he, uh, and that that's the thing that sort of really infuriates Bruno is that Bruno only exists in the gay slash murder world, whereas Guy mm-hmm. is able to sort of play at love and marriage in the street. Even world. the name Guy kind of suggests that yeah yeah um and and that that the the way that the hitchcock um movie also sort of plays bruno is somewhat effeminate whereas mm-hmm. guy is um just handsome and could could appear to be yeah although i, I would say that fun. i would say that uh, um by casting farley granger whom he had cast as the um, 
I want to put this in heavy quotes, but effeminate uh, murderer in rope uh, um, uh, by casting him as guy. I, I, th- I think that there's some uh, um, continuity there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, yeah, so I think that that's why it feels like a, a persuasion or a seduction where it's like all of the legitimacy that guy could get from appearing straight mm-hmm. and being in relationships with women and all of this, all of that is something that Bruno has to persuade him to give up for right. the, the gay slash murder world where, mm-hmm. where reality is and where nobody is actually going to ever punish you. <laughs> like the, the morality you were raised with mm-hmm. is just fake anyway. Right. And, uh, and, and of course this might make, more sense in a context where being gay is itself a crime. Uh, so, Very so, much so. You know, yeah. Uh, um, so, so, so uh, there, there, there's that meme that's the, the, the sort of joke meme, be gay, do crimes. Um, but in the, in the context of 1940s, 1950s America, being gay was itself a crime. So uh, from one perspective, well, if you're going to criminalize, criminalize who, if the society is going to criminalize who you are, um, then why not just go the whole, whole way? So I kind of want to talk about, I'm sorry, Catherine. Yeah, well, I kind of want to talk about this in relationship to that, that idea, like the connection between queerness, gayness, transness, I think more than anything, and murder. Um, the idea that you see over and over again in fiction that being gay just sort of tends to lead to murder for some right. reason, that if a person is queer they are corrupted or they are corrosive to the to the social structure in a way that is going to destroy everything and i so i think that um you know this gets used in in hateful ways that are unreflective by straight people it gets used in hateful ways accidentally by people who are queer who are replicating the structures that they've received it gets used reflectively to me this book seems like a a fairly unreflective take on that. Um, a book that is that is playing in that pool without fully interrogating the pool. And I think that the Ripley books later are a little more successful or coherent in their approach to this, but they also take a view that I think is wrong, which is that, yes, there is a connection between these two things, and that's fine. There is necessarily an association and and the books. I, w- I don't want to say Highsmith for sure. I feel like that may be a step too far. But the books are certainly fine with Ripley. They're fine with the murders and they're fine with the connection between queerness and murder. But I read the books from a position of I believe that they have they make a variety of perverse arguments that I don't want to endorse. Right. I don't think that they're correct about the world. So I enjoy seeing that coherent evil vision of the world and of queerness, but I I would never want to stand by it. And this to me gets back to why, and I know we've talked about this, David, so I apologize, but like why I do not like the ending of the Minghella talented Mr. Ripley, because I think that that movie, as you say, it's contrived that Ripley has to murder his lover. I don't believe for one second, given everything that he's given away with, he isn't capable of just hiding a guy on a boat for a week. Like, Of course he can get away with it if he really wanted to. Um, But the movie wants us to feel so bad for Matt Damon's character, for for Ripley, because um, the movie agrees that there is a connection between being gay and murdering people. And you... I I mean, I would argue that that, um, the film, particularly given the film was made in 1999, uh, looking looking back, I I think absolutely uh, what you raise is a fair point. But I I do think that... um, rather than thinking that there's a link um, between um, gayness and committing crimes, it's looking more, uh, uh, it's much more that in that specific context where gayness is a crime, uh, um, then, um, then, then Ripley has no choice um, but to um, commit crimes itself. And of course, there are also class right. issues yes. as well. But, 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 but I, I would say that, that, that it's a very big distinction um, between making a link between um, queerness and a uh, propensity to murder, which absolutely is a major um, horrible theme uh, in uh, in popular culture um, throughout the 20th century. Um, it, for an, anybody who's interested, um, there was just a few months ago 
um, a really terrific uh, video essay by Lindsay Ellis um, uh, breaking breaking this down, um, and and it, it kind of goes systematically. Um, and uh, she warned you at the beginning that uh, it's going to be difficult to watch, regardless of whether you're trans. And it's, and it's true; it's a difficult video to watch, but it's a, to my mind, a crucial one because it really does expose this uh, very real um, tendency uh, in American popular culture. So, it, so it is important to be to be um, careful there. But like I say, I do I do think there's a difference between saying that there that there's some kind of link between queerness and murderous tendencies, and saying that. You know, if you're if society is going to criminalize queerness, then you then putting um, uh, queer people in the space of criminality has other effects as well. Yeah, I think that the the one of the qualities that Highsmith has, other than queerness, is uh, hatefulness. In you know, like being racist, anti-Semitic, like all mm-hmm. of these things. Um, yes. That I think that she does have this feeling that is in this text that what we're told about human value is kind of a lie. Mm-hmm. And so the, I, I, I don't, I haven't read the Ripley book, so I, you can tell me about this, but to me, the idea that she's going to have a protagonist who someday has a really sincere, uh, intimate love that they then have to, you know, murder the person because of circumstances. I don't know that I believe that, She's writing that. Maybe, maybe she is later. She's. Oh, oh, to be clear, she's definitely not writing that. That's not in the book. Okay. Okay. uh, This is specifically in the movie. Um, I I think that this is the work of a person who is much more persuaded by disgust and eroticism than they are by um, intimacy or love that is not on some level a form of murder i do agree with that i do again though i i always resist reading this as being straightforwardly highsmith's view of the world um when again i so this is me talking about a book that we haven't read which is a little bit unfair um but the Ripley books, to me, are more invested in their own perversity and more comfortable with it, but they do continually remind you that the author is at least aware that a person could object to what Ripley does, and you don't feel good about it all of the time when he when he makes his first murder. Um, I don't think anybody is happy about it at, or how it goes down. Um, so I, I do want to stop short of saying she endorses this. I do think, though, that the that the narrative consciousness of the book does. I think that's true. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I mean there's, there's also throughout thrillers um, a, uh, um, uh, a suggestion that you, the audience, are, um, in a sense, causing this um, by enjoying it. That's um, present in Hitchcock's work throughout um, in the 1943 film Shadow of a Doubt, which is one of his best films, uh, there are two side characters who are um, uh, obsessed with detective novels and are constantly suggesting to each other way, uh, ways of killing each other. Um, and the, and they, they don't, you know, we don't get the sense that they would ever actually do it. Um, but of course, we're identified um, with those um, characters by, by virtue of watching the movie. Uh, in the movie version of Strangers on a Train, uh, Bruno's murder of uh, Miriam is filmed through a reflection in glasses, uh, which also plays into uh, the in a, a pair of eyeglasses, which of course plays into the idea um, of the audience's complicity. And also, I just want to walk back uh, something that I said about Michelle Hanukkah's funny games. I suggested that um, that uh, Hanukkah didn't think that the um, murderers were doing anything wrong. That's that's not true. I, I think Hanukkah knows that the murderers were doing something wrong. What he what he is suggesting is that. Um, it's almost, it's essentially entirely the audience's fault for watching the film in the first place. He says that almost explicitly in interviews. That is my least favorite trope. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but anytime the audience is going to get implicated in some violence, I'm like, (laughs) sign me out. I am not here for it. Um, Yeah. But like pretty much if if there's a movie review, and this is why I haven't seen funny games, is because they're like, you're going to get implicated in the violence. I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. want to. Uh, I will not be watching that. Um, I also wanted to say, I wanted to walk back my own claim about um, not really believing that uh, that Highsmith would write about 
love that increases human dignity or value of life and um, say that, that I haven't read The Price of Salt, but it could well be that The Price of Salt is, in fact, that kind of love story. Because if she's writing, like, I read the first published lesbian love story with a happy ending, um, it, you know, mixed happy, but happy ending. Like, that's a that's not necessarily a love story where love is a degradation, essentially. Yeah, weirdly, I've re- I read like the first half of that and I stalled out in the middle for for no clear reason. And I'm continually remembering that I did that and that I need to go back and finish it. But you, you're absolutely right that at least as far as I read and my, my sense of the overall thing is that it's not a book about murdering people <laughs> and how great it is. It is instead a fairly earnest um, book about love and, and romantic and erotic love between women. That's the end of our Highsmith episode. Thank you to Mike and David, and also to Adam Bear for our music. Thank you to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us, and to all our listeners. We love hearing from you, so please rate and review at Apple Podcasts. We're at Lit Century Pod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye till next week. <laughs>